0: President Putin mediates groundbreaking peace deal in Nagorno Karabakh. Peace deal. On the 9th of November, the presidents of Azerbaijan, Armenia, Russia, and the Republic of Artsakh, Nagorno Karabakh, signed a peace deal to end hostilities in the area from the 10th of November. Serious clashes had broken out on the 27th of September when Azerbaijan, with the support of Turkish and Israeli military equipment and bolstered by mercenaries redeployed from Syria, launched a ferocious bombardment aimed at liquidating the Republic of Artsakh and launching an occupation of the entire area by Azeri military forces and their mercenaries. Though Nagorno-Karabakh has suffered greatly, evidence has emerged of Azerbaijani troops beheading Armenians and desecrating the dead, the agreement presents better prospects for future peace than previously. Why is this so? Amongst the various aspects of the agreement, there are a few that are of exceptional interest and can be celebrated by anti-imperialists. These are 1. 2,000 troops from Russia will now be deployed in the region, including along the Lachin corridor that connects Nagorno-Karabakh with Armenia. The surest guarantee of peace will be the presence of Russian troops – a huge victory for Russia that will now secure a presence in the area, deter the encroachment of Turkey and mercenary forces into the region, and act as a deterrent for any future scheme of Blitzkrieg. 2. Under the agreement, Russian troops are to be stationed for five years, with a five-year extension, unless one party objects, with a minimum of six months' notice. It is to be hoped that perpetual renewal of a Russian military presence can protect the Nagorno-Karabakh civilians and ensure a strategic position for Russian diplomacy in the Caucasus. For Armenians, many of whom had looked to build closer ties to the West in recent years, the war was a harsh reminder that Russia remains critical to their security. Because Azerbaijan's main ally, Turkey, posed what many Armenians considered to be an existential threat. Armenians have come back, quote, to our default position, the reflexive perception of Russia as the savior, end quote, said Richard Giragosian, a political analyst based in the Armenian capital, Yerevan. Three, a plan will be determined within three years for the construction of a new route through the Lachin Pass to connect the territory with Armenia. The development of transport links, no doubt engineered so as to be well defended in any future conflict, will provide Stepanakert with a well defended supply line to Armenian territory. The development of peaceful trade and exchange should lead to a normalization of sorts in the relations between the various peoples of the region, reducing the threat of atrocities and murder. Four. Russia's FSB Border Service will exercise control of transport communication and oversee new infrastructure linking Azerbaijan with the Nakchivan Autonomous Region, an area separated from Azerbaijan by Armenian territory. The presence of Russian troops in controlling the area's transport is of great significance. It ensures peaceful exchange between the warring parties, and it assigns a strategic intermediary role to Russia in the internal affairs and interchange of people, goods, and services between two former Soviet states. In so doing, it reduces the potential influence of Turkey or U.S. imperialism in any similar endeavor and creates a common ground for the mutual cooperation of the three former Soviet countries. This result must be considered a great victory for Russian diplomacy. Great Victory for Russia The words of Azad Isazad, an Azeri nationalist and former member of the Defence Ministry in the 1990s, should cheer the hearts of progressive people. Asked about the outcome of the peace deal, he said, I don't know how it will end this time, because there is no good example of Russian peacekeepers in the Caucasus. I am worried how it will end. Mr Isazad is quite correct in recognising that the presence of Russian peacekeepers is bad news for Azeri nationalism. If the Azerbaijanis had hoped to score a crushing victory, they have merely lifted a rock to drop it on their own feet. Having secured a handful of long-abandoned and neglected hillside towns, most of them in a state of complete dilapidation and decay, Azeri nationalism has now guaranteed the presence of Russian military forces in the region, a role they should have adopted in previous conflicts, particularly in the 1990s, but were too weak to fulfill. Their arrival in both is both a sign of renewed Russian military strength and a guarantee that the aggressive Azeri national project will never now be realized. Peace deal unfolds. The New York Times carried the following report of the events immediately leading up to the peace deal. In early November, Azerbaijani troops wrested the mountaintop citadel of Shusha from Armenian control scaling the wooded slopes and fighting hand-to-hand in close combat through the streets. By the 9th of November, they were pummeling Armenian soldiers along the road to nearby Stepanakert, home to a peacetime population of some 50,000 ethnic Armenians, and an even bigger battle appeared imminent. Then Mr. Putin, who earlier had tried to, to broker a ceasefire, stepped in. Azerbaijan that night accidentally shot down a Russian helicopter potentially giving Moscow a reason to intervene. The Russian president delivered an ultimatum to Mr. Aliyev of Azerbaijan, according to several people briefed on the matter in the country's capital, Baku. If, If Azerbaijan did not cease its operations after capturing Shusha, the Russian military would intervene. The same night, a missile of unknown provenance hit an open area in Baku without causing any injuries. According to Azerbaijani sources, Some suspected it was a signal from Russia that it was prepared to get involved and had the capacity to fight, to inflict significant damage. Hours later, Mr. Putin announced a peace deal, and Mr. Aliyev went on television to announce that all military operations would stop. Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan of Armenia said he had no choice but to go along, facing the prospect of even more bloodshed on the battlefield. In an interview reported by the TASS News Agency, the role of President Putin was stressed by spokesman Dmitry Peskov. Quote, Good and constructive relations based on mutual respect with Baku and Yerevan helped Putin to mediate this settlement. End quote. Peskov said, in order to stabilize the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, Putin spent, quote, many and many days with a phone in his hand. End quote, and personally controlled the developments, he noted. Putin also held talks with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Quote, In 2020, active combat actions in Europe, right near our borders, are something that certainly the world community must not allow to happen. In this case, Putin's responsible position, his efforts to stop this are certainly worth a lot, and it's hard to overestimate them. End quote. Peskov stressed, War Crimes Amnesty International and other imperialist hand-wringing, raggle-taggle mercenary organisations are now starting to report on the videos of Azerbaijani troops circulated during the conflict. These videos were circulated in an effort to inspire fear and terrorise the population of Nagorno-Karabakh. As in Syria, civilians were beheaded and bodies mutilated in a bid to cover up these crimes Amnesty is equating, is equating them with those of the Armenians, conflating the bestial crimes of the aggressor with the defensive and retaliatory moves of those attacked. In its headlines, Amnesty obscures the fact that beheadings and such like were committed by Azerbaijani troops and mercenaries whilst Armenians uh, whilst Armenians merely went in for murder. All these brutal acts, whether Azeri or Armenian, have their origin in the aggression of Azerbaijan. Quote, One video from the first incident shows a group of men in Azerbaijani military uniforms holding down a struggling man while another soldier decapitates him with a knife. The executioner is is, is identifiable as an Azerbaijani soldier based upon the type of camouflage of his uniform. The Azerbaijani flag on his shoulder and a patch with his blood type listed on his sleeve as is standard among Azerbaijani soldiers. The victim is shirtless and is wearing only his underwear and trousers and the decapitation and after the decapitation the crowd claps and cheers loudly in the second video of the first incident the victim's head has been placed on the nearby carcass of a pig the men speak in Azerbaijani and the camera's microphone captures them addressing the victim with comments such as you have no honor this is how we take revenge for the blood of our martyrs and this is how we get revenge by cutting heads Sources have confirmed to Amnesty International that the victim was an Armenian civilian. A video from the second incident shows two men wearing uniforms consistent with the Azerbaijani military, including a clear Azerbaijani flag on one man's right shoulder and a cutaway helmet that is normally reserved for special operations forces. The victim is an older man, in civilian clothes, who is pinned to the ground. He is filmed begging for mercy, repeatedly saying, For the sake of Allah, I beg you. While the man speaks an Azerbaijani, he does not have an Azerbaijani accent. Amnesty International believes he was most likely an Armini- Armenian resident of Nagorno-Karabakh. One of the men is heard to say, Take this one, and hands a knife over to the other man, who begins to brutally cut the older man's throat before the video abruptly ends. Use of weapons tested in Syria In an interview with Al Jazeera, Moscow-based political oracle Alexei Malashenko said that the war was a technological victory. While some of Malashenko's commentary would fall short under scrutiny, he did give an interesting summary of the weapons involved. Azerbaijan placed its bets on sophisticated, pricey weapons and new tactics battle-tested in the Middle East, while its foes relied on old Russian-made arms and obsolete stratagems they mastered in the 1990s, analysts say. Armenian-backed troops moved around in large groups or in trucks. Their trenches were wide, but not deep. Their artillery was barely disguised and stayed put for days, becoming an easy target for air raids. Their weapons were hopelessly dated. Their fighter jets did not fly a single sortie, and their Russian-made OSA and Strela anti-aircraft missile systems were powerless against Baku's most lethal battlefield upgrade, unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs popularly known as drones. Their technical and tactical disadvantages were obvious from dozens of videos the Azerbaijani military shot from drones that targeted these large groups, jam-packed trucks, shallow trenches and exposed artillery. The Turkish-made Bayraktar TB2 drones carry laser-guided bombs and have been battle-tested in Syria and Libya, Israeli reconnaissance and patrol, Heron and Hermes UAVs, and lastly Kamikaze orbiter drones also made in Israel. Reconnaissance drones helped aim, aim artillery fire that forced the Armenians to retreat. Significance of Russian troops brought out in question to Zakharova. In a press briefing on the 16th of December, Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova responded to a telling question. The response was typically tactful and will not be quoted here, as it says nothing. But the quoted outburst by Azerbaijani's parliamentary vice-speaker gives readers an insight into the real results of the peace deal and the practical changes resulting from the presence of Russian troops. Vice-speaker of the Azerbaijani parliament, Adil Aliyev, said the Russian peacekeepers had no right to protect the villages that Turkish-Azerbaijani troops had tried to seize the day before. Russia has no right to interfere with the Azeri Special Services anti-terrorist operation in Nagorno-Karabakh and will suffer significant losses together with Armenia, he posted on his Facebook account. Can you comment on these statements? With Russian troops on the ground in Nagorno-Karabakh, the Azerbaijani forces will have to play a much more careful game. Armenia and Azerbaijan before 1917 the Russian Empire, before the Soviet Revolution, was a veritable prison house of nations. National minorities were unable to conduct their business in their own languages, and the rights of the minorities were trampled underfoot. Kyrgyz poet Ali Tokom Bayev wrote, Our language was covered with wormwood, with the darkness of ages, invasions and wars. Our language and people were prisoned. This was the situation the proletarian revolution inherited. National discrimination, said the Bolshevik Congress in 1921, rested up to now on the economic discrimination, which was the product of history. This discrimination expressed itself primarily in the fact that these outlying sections of Russia, being in the position of colonies and semi-colonies, were forcibly maintained in the role of purveyors of raw materials of all sorts to the industrial centers of the economy. The economic underdevelopment of the colonies, meant that the people there were also deprived of cultural development. The, development. the development of a local intelligentsia was hampered. There was no literature, save what the autocracy permitted, and the only schooling was in the seminaries. Not only were large sections of the people illiterate, but before the Bolsheviks came to power, a great many nationalities did not even possess a written form of their language. The triumph of Bolshevism uprooted economic and cultural backwardness and discrimination. Transcaucasia and Soviet Central Asia were transformed economically. These countries passed from colonial agrarian backwardness to agro-industrial technically advanced industry on a socialist economic basis in a matter of a few years. With this development came also a great cultural development of the people. Under Tsardom, the national sentiments amongst the oppressed people could be used by the socialists in a progressive way in the struggle against Russian imperialism the autocracy, and the remnants of feudalism. But these sentiments were also used by the autocracy, and later on by the bourgeois nationalists, to sow hatred, fermenting pogroms, and strife amongst the people. A desire to modernize Russia, to bring her social and political systems into line with the developing economic forces of modern capitalism, animated a discussion amongst bourgeois nationalists from the 1870s onwards. In Transcaucasia, modern-day Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia, national groups sprang up during this period. One such group, the Maori Dasi, was a Georgian nationalist group, many of whose adherents who went on to become prominent Mensheviks, collaborators with British imperialism and the Ottoman Empire. After the Russian Revolution in 1917, these Mensheviks, in collaboration with imperialism and various other nationalist forces, Musavatists in Azerbaijan and Dashniks in Armenia, led anti-Soviet resistance in attempts to to keep Transcaucasia divided and out of the socialist camp. These nationalists squabbled over resources, provoked pogroms, and pitted one group against another in an attempt to hold on to power. It was from this cauldron of contradictions that Leninism developed its national policy, and the greatest contribution to Marxism on this question was made by the Georgian, Joseph Stalin, in his book Marxism and the National Question. Stalin and other prominent Bolsheviks from Transcaucasia waged a fierce struggle against the bourgeois nationalists and managed to forge unity amongst the oppressed peoples of Transcaucasia. This eventually resulted in the formation of Soviet republics, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia, and the existence of autonomous oblasts or regions such as North and South Ossetia and Abkhazia inside the Georgian and Russian republics and Nagorno-Karabakh inside the Azerbaijan. The Soviet approach to solving the national question, which guaranteed the rights of minorities and established autonomous regions within the republics, ensured that the Soviet Union was largely free of the internecine warfare that has largely ravaged parts of the former Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc ever since the collapse of the USSR. A great strength of the Bolshevik party was that the masses of the national minorities trusted the Bolsheviks. And provided the party with their best sons and daughters, enjoying full, to partici- pa- enjoying full participation in Soviet life during the Stalin epoch. Many outstanding Bolshevik leaders, true proletarian internationalists, came from the minorities of Transcaucasia. Future prospects. In our last article on this topic, we said quote, a peacekeeping force made up of the CIS Commonwealth of Independent States countries would be preferable to the ongoing bombardment of Stepanakert. The prospect, no matter how dim, of a United Nations peacekeeping force or the ongoing paralysis of the OSCE Minsk Group. When the Soviet Union was dissolved in 1991, the CIS Charter established a Council of Ministers of Defense that was later replaced by a military cooperation coordination headquarters based in Moscow. That body is made up of the nine member states of the CIS, and, assuming it still exists, must be considered the best-placed political body to, ve- to develop mutual mutually beneficial proposals for avoiding armed conflict on the territory of the former USSR. In particular, the development of measures to prevent aggressive external encroachment into the former Soviet territories. Closer union of the peoples of the former USSR, even upon the basis of capitalist economic relations, is their surest hope for preserving their independence and avoiding the real prospect of a major conflagration with a hostile neighbor. Such a conflict would be used by the USA to undermine and destabilize one of the main political states in today's world that poses a serious challenge to the total global dominance of U.S. imperialism. The peace agreement reached in November presents a much brighter prospect than any that has emerged since 1991, because it is founded upon a central role for Russia, Russia as a mediator, Russian diplomacy, Russia as a link between former Soviet states, Russian military power as a deterrent to pogroms and nationalist blitzkrieg by aggressors and their imperialist backers. Closer cooperation and interplay between former Soviet states is to their mutual benefit. It is a guarantee of their territorial integrity, of peace amongst their peoples, of mutual benefit from economic cooperation, and of the restriction of the control of foreign capital over their respective economies.